0: Well, this morning, I want to take just a, a quick opportunity to say a couple things. Um, first off is uh, we had some friends over last night. Uh, I apologize, friends who joined us last night. Uh, I thought I was serving you decaf coffee. It said decaf coffee on the bag, but at 3 a.m. when I was looking at the clock, it didn't feel like I had drank decaf coffee. So if you were up all night, I apologize. Um, I think it about 3.30 or so before we finally kissed the world goodnight. So uh, the second thing is this. Um, We have um, decided, uh, many of you know Pastor Tyler at Crystal Lawns, great pastor, and and, and Pastor Tyler and I have been meeting uh, almost every other week, and our conversations have been good. Uh, But one of the things that Pastor Tyler and I have um, discussed is the fact that uh, one of the things we learned from the work and witness trip was that they had a work and witness team that went out like monthly, if not weekly, and we thought that was really cool, in fact Um, as our church board met, that was one of the things they said, was that they really liked that the Costa Ricans had a work and witness team. And so, Pastor Tyler and I have been talking about this idea of what can we possibly do uh, to do something like that. And so, we have decided that we would like to partner as churches uh, to come together, and this is kind of the logo, we're coming together, united for the purpose of community. And so our thought is this, that as you guys begin to sign up, we'll put teams together and we'll serve bi-weekly throughout the month. So you, you might be on one team, which means you only have to serve once a month, but we'll do simple things like cleaning people's houses, we'll work with the park district on maybe building parks or cleaning parks. Uh, the possibilities of things that we can do for our community are endless, and so we feel like uh, our mission here at Joy at First is to become a community of hope. If you don't know that, now you do. Our mission at at, Joy at First is to become a community of hope. And we feel the best way that we can do that is come together, united for the purpose of community. Thus, you have come unity. Beautiful, isn't it? You can thank Janelle for that one. She thought of that idea. And so we'll be, we'll be partnering with Crystal Lions. Um, we have a project already in January on January 30th. Uh, you can go online, believe it or not, we have a website. Uh, I would encourage you to go there. Uh, check it out. There is a tab that says Community. There you can register your name. You can be a part of one of those teams and join us on our first trip on January 30th. Uh, let me encourage you to do that. If you don't know the website, it's jolietnaz.org. Go there, check it out, sign up, and uh, we'll have sign-ups here at the church as well, but Consider being part of, of this mission as we learn what it means to become a community of hope. I guess I'm missing my uh, my uh, stand here. So this morning, we are in week three of Advent, which, as you know, uh, we are approaching this theme of joy. Uh, if, as Jeannie said, if you didn't get that, then there's no help for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> But I want to think back with you um, maybe 15, 20 years ago. Uh, There was a time when an athlete might make a miraculous play. Or maybe somebody was extremely skilled in their profession. Uh, Maybe you witnessed something amazing that's never been done before. Uh, Perhaps a snowboarder or a skateboarder made this amazing jump that was just unbelievable. Uh, Or maybe I can think back to when Jordan, before he was just a brand of shoes, made these amazing championship shots. Many of you won't believe this, but uh, the younger generation now, he's nothing more than a brand of shoes. When you say Jordan, all they think of is shoes. They don't even know who Michael Jordan is, which I think is kind of funny. But, but I, I think back to those times, and, and, and we would use this one phrase. No, now maybe you didn't, but I did. And this is about 15, 20 years ago. We would say something like this. We'd say, you the man. Y'all remember this, right? He's the man. You the man, Right? Anybody ever said that before? Teens, I don't know if this is even cool to say this anymore. Probably not. We'll not say it, so we won't embarrass ourselves. But we used to say, you the man. And and so I've been been thinking this week about the importance of the man. Now, women, I'm sorry. Back in the 80s and 90s, we weren't as sophisticated uh, in our political correctness. So you could beat a man, too, even though you a woman. So... uh, but I think now you can be the woman. So, uh, But I'm thinking about this. That, that I've been engrossed with this idea of the man. And, and when we say that very phrase, it says something about the person, that they've reached this superior status. It says that in some ways they've been set apart from everyone and everything else. I kind of think this, that as we call somebody the man or the woman, that there's kind of this exaltation or, or, or this elevation. And in some ways, what we do with athletes is there's this deification of the person. And so this, this, this thought has been running through my mind all, all week, and I have a, a really good friend who recommended that I watch the Goebbels Experiment on Netflix. If you're really bored or you just love history and diaries, I would recommend you go and do that. So I, I, I watched the Goebbels Experiment. And what it is is about Joseph Goebbels. Hitler's propagandist during World War II. And uh, he was great at what he did. Uh, I mean, not that that was a good thing, but he was great at what he did. And um, what I find interesting about him is that he was, in many ways, the atypical or the typical dictator. He was, from childbirth, uh, dealt a sickness that he couldn't deal with, and then he, he lost some feeling in his legs. And so as a kid, he was kind of set aside on the margins. He was kind of this loser. But but as he grew up, he became a wonderful figure. Well, I shouldn't say wonderful. He became a figure of importance within history. And you look throughout his life, and as as they read his diaries in this, this experiment, you begin to hear things. Uh, it's like this roller coaster ride with him. Uh, one minute he sang... I'm taking joy in my work. And the next minute he's saying, I'm meandering in my life. My life is useless. I feel pointless in my life. But one thing that that really struck me as I began to watch this documentary was his affixation with the man. I'm going to read some of what he said. Uh, I, I just thought it was interesting. But he says this, we need a firm hand in Germany. Let's put an end to all the experiments and the empty words, and let's get down to work. Germany is yearning, listen, for an individual, a man. that, That was his words. Germany is yearning for a man as the earth yearns for rain in the summer. And only our reserves of strength and enthusiasm and utter commitment can save us now. Are you hearing this? He says, my quest is for the new Reich and the new man. This can only be found through faith, but faith in ourselves. He says, he says as he meets Hitler for the first time, he says, he stands tall, he's healthy and he's vigorous. He puts us to shame with his, hear this, kindness and compassion. He is filled with brilliant replies. And he says, I love him. I love his new insights. I can accept him as my leader. And then he goes on to say this, he says, I bow to his superiority. We can now conquer the world. Now you could watch this 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 with not even thinking about what he's saying, other than that he's just writing some oh some diary. But these are explosive words. Later in the documentary he says this What does Christianity mean today? (laughs) What does Christianity mean today? National socialism has become my religion. All we lack is religious genius. Now, he's putting down Christianity at this point. All we lack is religious genius, capable of uprooting outmoded religious practices and putting new ones in their place. One day, national socialism will be the religion of all Germans. My party is my church. These are his words, not mine. I believe I serve the Lord best if I do his will and liberate the oppressed, From slavery, he says, "This is my gospel." Wow, I love this question that he poses in the documentary: "What is Christianity?" Essentially, what he is saying to people is this: is that this Jesus guy is antiquated? He's kind of outdated. He's irrelevant. He's useless. The ways that we gain freedom and conquer the world are no longer the ways of Jesus. These are outdated practices and modes of religion. So we need new ways of thinking about how freedom and and, uh, ridding oppression in the world comes about. And you notice that in his language, he often uses language of the man. Who's the man? Hitler's the man. Hitler's the one that will save us. And I find this extremely chilling when you hear these words, that he would take and bow himself before the superiority of a human being, as if he were God. And so I want you to think about this this morning, that that often it's man's attempt to make someone or something God other than God himself. I want you to hear that, because that's kind of the thought and theme for today, that That's often man's attempt to make someone or something God other than God himself. You see, that is the problem when we are introduced to the, the story of creation. That when we meet God, he creates his people out of love. And in that love, we are given a freedom to choose. That is a beautiful thing. The downside is, we have the freedom to choose. We have the freedom to choose God or to choose us. And at the very core of what's going on in the creation story is that when Adam and Eve begin to eat of the fruit, essentially what they're saying is, I am now making myself the deity, the God. And the rest is history, and we have the world around us. But it's always been man's attempt from the beginning to make someone or something else God other than God himself. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the prophet Isaiah, Uh, But before we do that, I need to kind of unpack a few things. So today we'll be discovering that Isaiah himself is kind of a a signpost of what's going on uh, in the times of Israel. You see, this has not been a problem just as of recent or in the 40s, but this tension of making God, making something or someone God other than God, has been a problem throughout history. And so, what's interesting is scholars begin to debate about who Isaiah is. Who is this man? Who is this person? And scholarship gets in this huge debate about who actually wrote the book of Isaiah, so much so that they forget the words themselves. That these are God's words that breathed into Isaiah or the people that helped write the book. And so, we see that in, in, in chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah, uh, we deal with judgment. And then, and then through 40 through 55, there's this comfort. And then 55 through 65, there's this, there's this restoration and peace. And many scholars believe that there were other people who kind of added in the, the latter portion of the book. And maybe Isaiah himself wrote the beginning, the judgment portion. But interestingly, the, the, the chapter that we're going to read this morning, uh, chapter 12, is, just so happens to be one of those chapters... That was added in later. At at least that's what scholars believe. That in the midst of of his big judgment time of of the kings and of Israel, in the midst, other writers began to implement this this story of salvation. You see, these these people were writing during the time of Babylon, the Babylonian uh, uh, exile. And so they felt that if they were just to read Isaiah's message of judgment in the beginning, there would be absolutely no hope. And so writers begin to implement these messages of salvation for the people to give them a sense of joy and hope in the midst of despair. But the problem, as I said before, is that the question that comes into play is the author or the agency of who wrote the book. And a lot of scholars, as they begin to debate this whole issue, The point is this, is that they become so focused on the man and who wrote the book that they've missed the words of God. And so the words of God have a large presence in the lives of his people. They submit themselves to being shaped by God's words, and they are constantly on the lookout for the holy. But this is the problem with Israel. They have disobeyed. They are no longer on the lookout for the holy. They have essentially looked for salvation in the hands of men. And so at this time, when Isaiah is speaking to the king of Ahaz, there's this wonderful story that will give a great picture of what we're trying to, to say this morning. Back in 2 Kings chapter 16, you, you don't need to go there, I'll just give you the synopsis because it's really confusing and I'll do my best to, to sum it up, but Back in the day of, of Isaiah, we, we had King Ahaz, who was in the south, in, in Jerusalem. Now, you remember a few sermons back, there was this great division, this great separation. And so there was a part of Israel that said, we're going to head north, and we're going to do our own thing. And so they became uh, the northern kingdom in Samaria. And Pekah was the king of the northern kingdom up there. And so then there was this great ruler, this Assyrian ruler, and I'm going to call him Tiggy because his, law, his name is too long. And I can't even say it. We're going to call him Tiggy. But this Assyrian ruler, Tiggy at the time, is going around and he is oppressing all these people. He's he's conquering nations, one nation at a time. And so there's this fear that's going throughout the land. There might have been a little conflict. We might have say there was a little, a little bit of a world war going on at the time. And so... Pekah, in the north, decides that he's going to team up with the Syrian king. And they create this, this pact that we will join together forces to defeat Tiggy, the Assyrian ruler. And so they go from nation to nation to nation, asking them, will you join us? Will you help protect us? Will you be a part of our, our league, is what they've called it. And so then they go down to Jerusalem to meet Ahab. And Ahaz says, "I don't want anything to do I don't want anything to do with your league that you're creating." Now, Pika and Rezin, the king of Syria, were a little bit upset by this, and so they decided, if you don't want to team up with us, we'll just beat you up until you team with us." And so interestingly, Ahaz doesn't give in. It's great. Instead, he does. This, this is really what happened this is really what proves the point this morning. Instead, he does this. He goes to Tiggy himself, the Assyrian ruler. Now, Isaiah is speaking into the life of Ahaz, and he's saying, Do not go to him. You are making a huge mistake if you go to this enemy and team up with him. In fact, he says, he says to him, He says, If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Those were Isaiah's words to him. But Ahaz, of course, thinking he knows it all because he's a king, decides that he will take matters into his own hands. And so, he sends messengers to Tiggy, this Assyrian ruler. And I love what he says. He says, sounds a lot like Goebbels. He says, I am your servant. Come up and save me out of the land of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Do you hear these words this morning? Isaiah is warning, the king of Judah, do not partner with the man who is oppressing everybody. And regardless of what he says, King Ahaz goes to this guy and says, I submit myself to you. You are the man who will save us. This is the problem. This is the problem. And interestingly, when you put your trust in rulers and princesses of this world, you should expect that they will rule by the rules of this world, which aren't fair at all. And so, yeah, the Assyrian king says, we'll help you out for a little bit, and he does, but then he has these little caveats off to the side. He says, now that we've protected you, I need you to come to Syria and make altars of Assyrian gods, so we can worship. And guess what? You'll be part of that. And in the end, Tiggy ends up destroying Jerusalem. You see throughout the prophet Isaiah that the Assyrians come in and destroy Jerusalem. So this is the problem for us today, is that God's people often make something other than God, God in their life. That we turn to humanity around us to save us. And this is the problem. And so in Isaiah, if you'll turn to Isaiah 12 with me, Isaiah writes these words. He says, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. Surely, God is my salvation. I will trust in him and not be afraid. The Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among all the nations what he has done. And proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud the sing for joy people of Zion for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. I love these words. The beauty of this passage or this hymn of thanksgiving is that it clearly says to us that what was not witnessed in the the Syrio-Ephraimite war is now being proclaimed boldly among God's people, that God is our salvation. That the problem for the Israelite people was that they submitted themselves to worldly gods rather than God alone. And now they've got it figured out. That we trust in God for our salvation. He is our refuge and strength. He is our protection. So my question for us this morning is this, is do we trust in God for our salvation? We like to throw... Taglines around in the church. I will trust in God. I will trust in God, you know. But when financial security is taken away from us, we don't trust in God. When health becomes a primary concern, do we trust more in the doctor or do we trust more that God will use the doctor? For many of us, when we find ourselves in a broken place, often we'll go to other people for help. But when do we go to help? When do we ask for help from God? So, do you trust God this morning fully for your salvation? I, th- I was thinking about my son Miles. Often we put our kids to bed at eight. We have a very strict routine. But there are often times we're late at night. I'll hear down the hall, Dad, Dad, Dad. No, it's not Elf. Yourself. Not Elf, but. <laughs> <laughs> So I go down there, and he's, and he's awake, and he's bright-eyed. And, he, and I said, what's wrong, bud? And he'll say, I'm afraid. And I'll say, well, bud, what do we do when we're afraid? He said, I will trust in God. We've kind of taught this in our house, that when we're afraid, I will trust in God. And I said, well, believe that. And I'll say a quick prayer with him, and he'll roll over. And he goes to sleep as if nothing ever happened. That is what trust looks like. He believes that God will do for him what he cannot do for himself. And that is the beauty of salvation. Salvation for us is God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God delivers us. He meets us where we are in our brokenness. He takes us from those threatening situations and he rescues us. These situations range from political oppression to unjust accusations to military disaster to physical illness to, yes, even spiritual and consequences of sin. God may use people, but at the root of our salvation is God himself. A wonderful scholar wrote this, and I like this. He says, the option of trusting God is not an empty, pious response to the hard issues of the world Rather, it is our only hope and our only real joy according to the book of Isaiah. In a world where faith is often questioned and or considered ineffectual in the face of injustice, violence, or self-satisfaction, Advent calls people to reevaluate where their trust lies. So here's what I want you to know this morning. I hope that I haven't bored you with the history of the Old Testament. I think it's kind of fascinating and fun, but we can always learn from the mistakes of our forefathers. Here's what I want you to know. You are not your own Messiah. Others around you are not your Messiah. The repetitive blunder of humanity's search for salvation has often found its salvation in the hands of men. Jesus calls us to find our salvation in the God-man, Jesus Christ. What I love about this Old Testament passage is that Israel has experienced and still anticipates the salvation. And so this morning, I want us to be reminded of the fact that you have experienced salvation. And yet we still await the final arrival of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jessica is, I I love this phrase that she uses. Uh, We're going to meet Jessica here in a few minutes. But she says, I drove by the church one night, and and I was desperate. And she said, I saw the sign for single moms, and I I decided that I was going to turn in. Actually, God decided. My wheel, I wanted to go straight, but it's like my wheel just turned. And she said at that moment, and I love this phrase. It was the first day of the rest of my life. It was the first day of the rest of my life. That ties in with this thought that I've said to you before, that, that when we say yes to Jesus, our eternity begins not when we die, but the moment that he, he, he dives into our life, he gives us hope and meaning, and we are moved by his love and compassion to live our daily lives. That is when your salvation begins right now. The world around you would love to tell you, trust in me. Politicians of this world will say, place your hope in my agenda. But the psalmist is quite clear that at the end of the world, the princes and rulers of this world, everything that they have built up will be gone. And what will you be left I know that I'll be left with knowing that I have the salvation of Jesus Christ in my life. So this morning we're going to do some, some things. It says in, in Isaiah that we are, procl- are to proclaim to all the nations what God has done. And I think we do that in two ways. Today we're going to baptize some of our, our good friends, some of our new believers. But baptism is this. Many of us see it as just a ritual and nothing more. But you have to understand that you, the church, are the world. You are part of the world. And so what we do this morning is not just some ritual, but rather it is distinctly Christian. It marks our salvation. It is a sign to the world of what God is doing in his people. And so as, we, we, as God goes to, to the Hades with, with all of our sin and, and death, he then comes out of the tomb, with resurrection and new life, saying, this is the new world. And so as we baptize folks today, as we put them under, in essence, what they are saying is that we are putting to death the sin and the destruction of our old lives. And as we come out, we are resurrected with Jesus Christ, who gives us life and hope. That is one way that we proclaim to the world the salvation that God gives us. The other way that we do that is Worship. Many of you know that I'm a firm believer that you cannot be a Christian apart from the church. So, what we do every week is not just, again, some methodical thing that we have to do, but when we come and sing, as Isaiah says, we are proclaiming the joy of God's salvation to the world. You don't think that your neighbors notice when you leave your driveway in the morning to what? Go to a Starbucks or go get a don't no i have a firm belief that the way you live your life tells them something about you and they know that on sunday morning you're heading somewhere for a specific reason so by you being called out of the world you're saying to the world there's something different about me and as you come here today and you sing about god's joy our hope is that that the noise that comes out of this place fills the world around us with hope, with God's love, with joy. These words you sing are not meaningless. That is why we give you a worship folder for you to take home, to rehash what you you have sung today so you can then go home and begin to sing that throughout the week. I know some of you can't sing a lick, but guess what? Your kitchen, your shower, Some other places we won't say are wonderful places to sing. When you're out raking your yard, for some of you yesterday, you were out mowing your grass. (laughs) This is a time to sing and proclaim the good news that Jesus has come. Amen. Amen. This morning, we are going to baptize. First, we're going to dedicate um, Cameron. So, Cameron, if you'll come up here. Hey, bud. How you doing, man? It's good to see you. Do you want all my? Okay. Well, this is one of my favorite parts. Church is when we dedicate one of these little ones to God. Jesus was very clear about the importance of children. In fact, he tells us in the Gospels to become like children. That these are not people that are the future of the church, but rather, Cameron is the church. And you have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to raise him right. (laughs) So in presenting this child for dedication, you signify not only your faith in the Christian religion, but also your desire that That Cameron may early know and follow the will of God, may live and die a Christian, and come to everlasting blessedness. In order to attain this holy end, it will be your duty as his parent to teach him the fear of the Lord, to watch over his education, that he will not be led astray. To direct his youthful mind to scriptures, his feet to the sanctuary, and to restrain him from evils associated with habits. And as much in you lies, to bring him up in and nurture an admonition of the Lord. Will you endeavor to do so by the help of God? If so, answer, I will. I I now ask you, congregation, will you commit yourself as the body of Christ to support and encourage uh, Jessica and Cameron as they endeavor to fulfill the responsibilities to Cameron and assist him by nurturing him in his growth towards spiritual maturity? If so, as a body of believers, please say, we we will. Very good. Our loving Father, we do here now dedicate Cameron in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I have a mic on. At this point, I'm going to ask... Jessica to come up here, and some of you may be surprised, but I'm going to ask Gary Benson to join us up here as well. I'm digging the socks. I love it. Maybe I could borrow some after. (laughs) I'm just going to give Jessica and Gary an opportunity to um, to share their story with you quickly.
1: Hi. <laughs> so m- this is my journey to baptism, and, uh, and my life has been hard, and I have been through many ups and downs. I survived them all. God knew my plan before I was e- ever born into this earth. Reflecting on my past is an important part of my life at this time so I can collectively accept, digest, and forgive, not only myself but those whom I need to forgive in my life and move on with purity for the future. Mm. The last four years in particular have been the hardest struggle for me, not only as a mother but as a person. I have suffered, been alone, and scared through my journey of motherhood. My son Cameron, he is my joy. To see his face, to feel his hugs, to hear I love you is what melts my heart. I dedicate my life to him, and now I'd like to dedicate him to God and to all of you as our family. Today, I will be baptized. After 35 years, I know where my faith lies, here at the Church of the Nazarene. You are all the most amazing group of people I have met in my whole life. You are our family, and Cameron and I are home. I dedicate my life from this point to live and strive to be Christ-like, to give hope and joy and comfort to those around me and far away, to touch people's lives and encourage the word of God. My thanks could never be great enough. My heart is full and my eyes are wide open to the glory of God and all the miracles that he has given us. (sighs) Today is truly the first day of the rest of my life.
0: All right, Jessica, hop in. Yeah, you'll come and step in here. All right. Jessica, baptism is a sign to the community around you that you have said yes to Jesus, that he is your Lord and your Savior. And so. Today, would you do you announce that Jesus Christ is King of your life? I do. Awesome. Jessica Lilly, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, Gary, uh, Gary, if you'd like to share a few words, it's yours. I'm not really a speech person, but uh, I'm glad he's in my heart, and he's also like a mechanic to me. It's like the car show I watch, uh, Overhaul. So he's like Overhaul my heart, yeah. and now I can actually say it. I'm a 1962 automobile. And my name is Gary, and I'm being overhauled.
1: All
0: right, brother. Do you want me to hold your hand? (laughs) Gary, do you recognize that Jesus Christ has forgiven you, that he loves you, and that he cares for you. And that on this day that you announce him as king of your life, if so, answer, I do. I do. Okay. Carrie mm-hmm. Benson, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Amen. Come on, man, I'll help you out. You her? Yeah. All right. Well, Amen. Well, if you're not moved by this, I don't know what will. <laughs> I hope uh, through this, that through this um, act of baptism this morning that, that maybe you've remembered back to the way that God has impacted your life, that he's changed your life, and he's given you new meaning and hope. May this encourage you throughout the week as you go and you you do God's mission and you bring more into this church and hopefully we'll baptize more next month. Amen. Jeannie, would you come lead us?
1: What a way to declare joy today. Amen. Let's stand together and say our closing prayer. Grant, we ask you, almighty God, that the words which we have heard this day with our ears may, through your grace, be so implanted in our hearts that they may bring out in us the fruit of godly living to the honor and praise of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Go in peace and with joy.